Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to Viral, a podcast series looking at the spread of COVID-19 as it continues to affect Ireland and the international world in a growing capacity. As new Irish cases steadily rise, today's podcast looks back at lockdown to see what can be learned if it was to occur once more. My government and I have received advice from the National Public Health Emergency Team. The concern about the rise in the number of cases over recent weeks is very real. The R number which we have all become familiar with, has now risen above one in this country. And the international situation, with almost a million and a half cases reported in just the last week, represents a growing worry. Taking these factors into consideration, today the Cabinet agreed that the current public health measures should remain in place until the 10th of August. We have agreed that the country will now not be progressing the phase four of the revised roadmap for reopening society and business. That was Taoiseach Michal Martin speaking on Wednesday evening about the government's decision to stall its current position on the roadmap out of lockdown until August 10th at earliest. The decision did not come as much of a surprise as we began to see a worrying trend of increased cases and clusters around the country. From the outset of the roadmap, it was made clear to us that it was indeed a living document, and now the possibility of a regression towards a more confined society is becoming more of a potential each day. The initial weeks of Ireland's full lockdown will stay in the minds of most for as long as they live. It is something that was unprecedented in our own lifetime, but now having had the experience first time round, there are a range of things that could have been carried out differently, and that is what we want to spend part of today's episode addressing as we look at the ethics of lockdown with Dr Andrea Mulligan, Assistant Professor of Law at Trinity College Dublin. Andrea wrote an article focused on the role the community plays during a pandemic, and in the chat we discuss some of the paradoxes between health officials acting fast and having a genuine two way dialogue with public health advice. I also speak with Professor Ivan Perry, Head of Epidemiology and Public Health at University College Cork, about what it means to be a zero COVID island and why our current strategy might leave us feeling the worst of both worlds. You mentioned in your post that although lockdown is a new phenomenon for us, lockdowns have a long and varied history. What do we know about previous social lockdowns then in the past? Yeah, I mean, I think the thing about lockdowns is that for us, we've been very lucky and we're not a society that I've had to think very much about them. But in terms of their history, uh, and I'm not a historian, I do know some bits and pieces about it. We know they go back a long way and we know that the first recorded lockdowns were in the uh, Italian city-states during the bubonic plague. And, and that involved kind of like quite similar sort of things that we would have today. So things like impounding of vessels and not allowing them into the city, quarantining people, surveillance, and actually like a lot of the same kind of measures that, that we would take, you know, essentially restricting people's movements with a view to preventing the spread of disease. And I guess a really important principle there is that quarantine, as opposed to isolation, is where you restrict someone's movement because they might have been affected by the disease. It's not someone who actually has the disease. Whereas isolation is where someone has the disease and you're restricting their movement so they don't infect other people. What was learned during the Ebola outbreak a few years ago that might have helped in preparation, I suppose, for what we've seen over the last four months? 
Yeah, so I suppose the Ebola epidemic was obviously in Africa and a very, very serious epidemic. The most important kind of like ethical take home from it was that it prompted the World Health Organization to produce a really important guidance document on guidance for the ethical management of a pandemic. So what that does is kind of brings together loads of different expertise and different views on on the most important ethical considerations for managing a pandemic. And of course, it's really important to say that it's not just about lockdown. Of course, the ethical considerations that arise in a pandemic relate to all sorts of other things. So data privacy, for example, and uh, the ethics of, say, scarce resources and how you distribute ventilators under conditions of scarcity and all of that. So I think very importantly, the World Health Organization, subsequent to the Ebola epidemic, put together this really important guidance document to inform people about all of those different things. And one of the things that they address in that document is lockdowns and quarantines. One of the things you spoke about is that trust is a hugely important factor between health bodies and the public during an infectious disease outbreak. Why exactly do you think that is? Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think that's really interesting. So this one of the first principles that WH document says is the trust is essential. And um, from what they say is for both ethical and for pragmatic reasons. So the ethical side, obviously, is that if you're going to restrict people's movements, it is right to do that in the context of a relationship of trust. Um, but on the pragmatic side, it's also just simply not possible to fight a pandemic effectively without the cooperation of the public. So no matter how much of a kind of police state you live in, it's just not possible to coerce everyone into doing the right thing in the context of a pandemic. You have to have buy-in from the public. And that's really, really important in terms of making these collective efforts work properly. And can we speak about that community involvement then? Is it even feasible mm. to have the community involved in such a fast-moving pandemic? Yeah, so this is exactly the problem. And people have talked about this paradox, which is the fact that you have to make decisions very, very quickly in a pandemic. But at the same time, it's very important to have buy-in from the public. So how do you both make your decisions fast enough for them to be effective and simultaneously sort of tell the public about them, but also get the public's views on them, right? Allow the public to feed in their views and, you know, kind of contribute to the policy cycle as you would want to in normal, in normal circumstances. It's very difficult. And I think this is one of these things that people all highlight this problem and they don't necessarily know what the solution is. Um, my own view is that, you know, in Ireland, we, I think we did a really good job in terms of a lot of the management of the pandemic, but I think we could improve on the community engagement. And I think that especially where we are now in this lull between the first and the second wave, and there probably will be a second wave, this is a very good time to get people's views. And you could do community engagement now, I think, and, and policy engagement now while the crisis is kind of abated a little bit. And in terms of then, you know, you need to try and keep some kind of community engagement going then when you go back into crisis phase. But obviously that's very, very difficult. One thing you mentioned is that obviously many of the leading voices around infectious disease and public health became, you know, household names over the last couple of months. Mm. Do we know whether most other countries also communicated a lot of their health messaging in the same fashion where it wasn't necessarily government fronted, it was health experts doing so? Yeah, I think not so much. I mean, I think there were probably experts that were prominent in other countries but my understanding is that we were unusual in the extent to which we put the scientists like front and center so they weren't just in the background advising the government they were actually out talking to the public and I think what's so interesting is that in Ireland they also weren't just speaking to the public in like formal briefing conditions they were also going on the radio Um, and a lot of them were you know really impressive media performers who were going on you know, kind of mainstream news media and answering questions from the public or answering questions from journalists. Um, And I think that's, I think it's very impressive. 
Um, and it's quite unusual because often expert advice is kind of very faceless um, and very distanced from the public. Whereas I think there's most Irish people could name a couple of the leading scientists who were involved or doctors who were involved in the response. And I think that's unusual and I think it's very healthy. And do we know if that was organic or was there a conscious decision to try and make it front-facing then? I don't know and I, I would love to know. So maybe uh, after maybe lots of FOIs of uh, the, the discussions that were had by Neffet or whatever, maybe we will find out. But I don't know. Um, maybe they realised that they had, um, you know, very impressive, trustworthy, good communicators who were part of the team. Um, but it might also have been influenced by the fact that we had a caretaker government. And if you're a caretaker government, you mightn't feel like you can be the face of the response so much that you need to have that supplemented by objective expert input so it doesn't feel as political. And I don't know if that's a conscious decision, but I think that seem maybe is a reason why the scientists were so important um, alongside the politicians. Speaking about Neffet again, obviously, initially, there were some issues about transparency. And I know meeting minutes were being kept from the public at times. Were you surprised mm. that that didn't become more problematic over the initial two months? Yeah, well, I, I should say uh, that I was a member of a subgroup of Neffet, which was the ethics subgroup. So, and I was very happy to contribute to that. So, I, I have to say that in response to this because obviously I'm, I'm a member of one of the groups mm. where the meeting minutes were somewhat delayed. So, my understanding is simply that I think there was a crisis, and I think that they didn't go up as quickly as people would have liked them to because of you know simply the fact that there was a crisis and there were scarce resources and it was hard to get that organised. I don't think there was any like in intention to keep any of this secret and I think if you look at the way it went by the end there was a very high degree of transparency in terms of minutes of both method and the subgroups so I think it just took a while for that to trickle through but certainly in round two and wave two and in the future it should be the case that all of that is going up straight away but I would hope that that will be one of the lessons learned from um, this wave of the pandemic you know that what people want is minutes up names of the all the group members up at all times and that you have that complete transparency from the get-go in terms of ethics how important a role is it in how we communicate public health advice like taking into consideration you know 40 years on from the initial aids pandemic there's still huge issues around how damaging some of the messaging was i suppose in stigmatizing patients but also within poor medical advice as well yeah, in terms, I mean, I think your, your ethics advice has to has to imbue the decisions you take, but also it's a good idea to convey that to the public. So I think it's very important to be very transparent about what you're doing, you know, so you're being transparent, you're being accountable, and there's no problem with saying that. But also I think it's important to characterize some of the decisions in the pandemic as actually ethically driven. So I've kind of been looking mostly at issues of transparency and accountability so far, but the next thing, you know, I would also look at is that the WHO has really important guidance on ethical management of other aspects of a pandemic. So, for example, they say that when you have a lockdown, you have to help people manage the social and economic effects of the lockdown. And you know, that's why something like the pandemic payment is really important. So my own view, and obviously I'm interested in ethics, is that you should be characterising your policy decisions as ethically driven. And you shouldn't be afraid to say that. You know, you have to say that the way everything about the way you fight a pandemic as a community obviously is imbued with ethics it's all about communitarianism it's all about making sacrifices for the broader good protecting the most vulnerable and all of those are 
ethical decisions and driven by ethical judgments. Obviously today as well we heard that in the UK that there is going to be an independent review of how it was handled over there. I think most mm. people would agree that in major parts it wasn't handled particularly well and we did a lot of things better here. Do you think is it still a good idea to review it very officially afterwards independently? I think it's always a good idea to review it. So I think it would be very good to review it here and you know look at what we did well and what we did badly and how we can improve. Uh, I would say that it, they, they can be very expensive. The, the kinds of reviews we've historically had in Ireland are things like tribunals of inquiry and commissions of inquiry, and they are extremely expensive. They don't necessarily give you um, the results that are all that helpful. Um, and I think, especially in public health, you need to look at how much you're going to spend if you're going to consider a very expensive route like those, um, as compared with what you might achieve if you put that money into pandemic preparedness otherwise. So... Absolutely in favour of independent review. That's never a bad idea, but you shouldn't be sinking the money that you really need for your public health measures in those kind of inquiries. Professor Ivan Perry is Head of Epidemiology and Public Health at University College Cork, who is part of a group of public health, science and medical experts who have formally urged the government to take immediate and decisive action here to make Ireland a COVID-free island. As we know, case numbers have been increasing yet again, and yesterday's Department of Health figures highlighted our biggest increase in over a month. How do we get to a COVID zero status while also exiting lockdown? Is that something that's possible? I think it is. I mean, it's not going to be easy, and it's not guaranteed to be successful. But I suppose the argument is that there is a potential strategy there that has been followed by New Zealand, which would be fairly extreme example, but unless you successfully follow there. And I suppose what we'd be seeing is that we need to shift from our kind of current, what you might call, state of truce with the virus, you know, that we're just about holding it at bay and there's a significant possibility that there'll be a second wave or surge in the autumn, that we shift strategy and we go for an elimination strategy or a virtual elimination where we would take maybe some extra pain in the short term. But then as a part of the country were COVID-free for up to four weeks, they could be gradually opened up and then you'd have a system in place to rapidly respond to any cases that emerge. Because obviously having a COVID zero strategy doesn't mean there won't be some cases. There were, for instance, some cases in New Zealand in recent weeks Mm. that were imported, um, but they were obviously contained and controlled very quickly. Would that require an enforcing of rules and regulations or would it just require a change in public behaviour? How would that be managed essentially? I suppose we'd have to maintain and intensify the current restrictions until we got the levels down to very low levels and perhaps have some mandatory instruments in relation to wearing masks indoors and in public spaces and and outdoors in crowds. Also, we, we probably need a more tighter regulation of travel so that when people come to Ireland, they would be, I suppose you'd have an enforcement of quarantine at a level of intensity beyond that which is happening now with perhaps testing on arrival and further uh, testing a week later and mechanisms in place to ensure that people were actually abiding by the regulations. Another area of contention is the reopening of some businesses and services next week, one mainly which is obviously pubs, which is caused a lot of anger in some corners of the country, especially Republicans now saying that a lot of pubs will sink if they are now, in fact, not reopened. I know there's a bit of confusion at the moment might happen and the decision's meant to be made this evening. Two things. I think the decision to 
allowed pubs that essentially self-declared as restaurants open some weeks ago that that was a mistake and the sort of guidelines drawn up by Falsha Ireland were never going to be enforceable or implementable at the level required. And I just think we just need to maybe hold back on the pubs maybe for, I think the 20th of July is likely to be too early Mm. because, you know, I can fully understand. I mean, my brother owns and runs a pub in the west of Ireland, so I can fully understand the pressure to kind of open up on family business and the levels of employment and the frustration, which you know, we're just seeing now what's, what's happened in other countries, leaving aside what's happened in the US and Florida and Georgia, where they never really closed down. But even in countries like Israel, where there was a pretty tight lockdown, but they've perhaps opened up slightly too quickly, you know, I, I think that we have to consider whether the better option isn't to, you know, go for broke, having taken all the pain that we have, go for broke and see if we can get the levels stably down to a very low level and keep them there. And of course, the sort of carrot is that if we can get parts of the country or ultimately the entire country into a very, very low level, which only the occasional case, well, then we can put potentially open up everything and kids can go back to school and we won't be worried about social distancing and life can begin to return to normal. Whereas there is a danger now that we're kind of caught in in a limbo where we're partially opened up, but people are anxious about coming out. And at the same time, business, when they do open up, they cannot function at full capacity because of the the social distancing requirements and they're just barely breaking even. Mm. So there's kind of no easy answer here. I suppose the COVID strategy is to take maybe a little bit more pain now, particularly for some sectors like um, airline and tourist sector, with the prospect that we can then open up fully earlier than we might otherwise. You know, we're dealing with huge uncertainty and anybody who's absolutely certain about what we should do, you know, is probably not close enough to the detail. But I think this COVID zero strategy is driven by the concern amongst a group of us that we may be up to for the worst of all possible worlds at the moment. That was episode 36 of Viral COVID-19. I'd like to thank both Ivan Perry and Andrea Mulligan for joining me on today's podcast. Join us next week for more news and info on Ireland's fight against COVID-19. I'm Ian Doyle. I'll talk to you then.